Good morning, church. Last time we uh, looked at John chapter 13, verse 1, began to break our way into this chapter. We saw there that there is a love from out of this world, and we just sung about rejoicing in our great Redeemer. It is our Redeemer's love that we were looking at there, and that we will continue to look at as we venture into chapter 13 and the chapters following that as well. We looked at the love that Christ has for his own. And this verse and its emphasis on the love of Christ is going to be put forth again and again and again as we continue our way through the Gospel of John. It says there in verse 1 that he loved them to the end. And that is that he loved them completely and fully. He loved them to the deepest depths, ultimately by dying for them, to save them from their sin. It's the ultimate price, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate expression of love for his own, that he would die, that they might be saved. It is crucial for us as believers to be ever-growing in our grasp of that profound love of Christ for his own. The Apostle Paul conveys the importance of us grasping this love of Christ in his second prayer, in his epistle to the Ephesian saints. And if we look there, it's in Ephesians 3. It's his second prayer, and he highlights for us particularly the love of Christ, beginning in verse 14. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Paul's prayer for the Ephesian saints was that they would know the love of Christ, that surpasses knowledge. How can you know something that surpasses knowledge? The idea here is that you are to keep growing in your understanding of Christ's love at greater and greater depths. You could spend forever doing that and never reach the bottom of it. This love is an infinitely deep well, and you need to grasp this love of Christ more and more and more. And you need God's help to grasp this love. He's revealed it in His Word. And we need the Spirit's illumination of the Word to our hearts to grow in our understanding of just how magnificent this love is. And so Paul earnestly beseeches the God of grace to bless the Ephesian saints to know the love of Christ more and more and more, deeper and deeper and deeper. And he says that this will lead to greater and greater maturity in them so that they can be filled up to all the fullness of God. 
And that's been my prayer for us, church, as we walk through these next several chapters of John. There's a lot of misrepresentations that people have put forth about love in general, and also about the love of Christ in particular. A lot of ways people talk about the love of Jesus in error that are man-centered and man-exalting rather than God-centered and God-exalting. Don't let all those misrepresentations of Christ's love deter you from the pursuit of what Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 is driving at. To know this love deeply. Do not be deterred from grasping at greater and greater depths the love of Christ that we see on display here in John. Because you need to know this love of Christ so that you can grow up in Christ-likeness. Now, our text this morning is in John chapter 13, and it is verses 2 through 11. Let me pray for us after I read these verses for us. Beginning verse 2, During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you in complete and utter dependence. We need your help. We need the illuminating work of your spirit to help us grasp what you have revealed in this passage Deepen our knowledge of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we work our way through this passage today, I want you to marvel at the King who washes feet. And we'll do so by looking at two key functions of this foot washing we're going to see in these verses. First, we'll see that this foot washing is an act of humble service. And second, we'll see this foot washing as a picture of spiritual cleansing. We'll look at the significance of the act itself, the washing of the feet, and then the picture that is within it, or the object lesson that Jesus provides for his disciples. So let's look first at the function foot washing as an act of humble service. Looking at verse 2, the first couple of words says, During 
Supper. And these words basically establish the scene. Supper here is referring to the upper room Passover meal that was shared between Jesus and his disciples. More detail is given of that in Matthew and Mark and Luke as far as the fact that they're in the upper room. It's that that meal, that Passover meal. And this was the night before the feast of the Passover, as we noted when we looked at verse 1. And so the question comes up, why Jesus and his disciples are sharing this supper together on Thursday evening, if the Passover feast is the following evening. And the explanation is actually fairly straightforward. The scholar Harold Honer has noted that Jews in the northern part of Israel and most of the Pharisees would count the days from sunrise to sunrise. Jews in the southern part of Israel and most of the Sadducees counted days from sunset to sunset. And so the Jews of the north and the Pharisees would celebrate Passover on the Thursday evening, whereas the Jews of the south and the Sadducees would celebrate Passover the Friday evening that followed. And it had the practical benefit of having such a large volume of sacrifices that are made over two days instead of one. And so Jesus could both share this Passover meal with his disciples on Thursday evening, and then at the time of his crucifixion would be the same time that the lambs are being slaughtered for the Passover feast on Friday. So here we are. It's Thursday evening. Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room and preparations have already been made for the Passover meal that evening. Then we get some darkness that gets introduced to the scene. Looking back at verse 2. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. The devil and Judas are mentioned here. The devil's darkness, his part in this darkness, is, is first highlighted. He had already put into or thrown into Judas's heart the temptation to betray Jesus. And to understand the significance of what the devil is doing here, we should look back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Here we're in the garden, and God is speaking out his curse and curses the serpent. Beginning in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The scene in John 13 is much bigger than the upper room. There is a cosmic war in view here. One in which the serpent would bruise Christ's heel, but Christ would crush the serpent's head. Ironically, part of this victory over the serpent comes through that very bruising or piercing of Christ, the crucifixion that is 
a matter of hours away. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15 say, When you are, were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Here is the triumph. The serpent will bruise the heel, but the Christ will crush the serpent's head. So back in John 13, verse 2, we see that the devil had already in his scheming thrown into the heart of Judas the temptation to betray Jesus. Now, this in no way absolves Judas of his responsibility for what he did. Look with me at James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. James speaks of temptation here. And he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. What ultimately draws a person into sin? It is his own lust. Temptation only works if it's something you desire. And so Satan tempted Judas in accordance with his own sinful desires. Judas loved money, not Christ. And Judas is a man who has been and will continue to be unmoved by Christ's displays of love toward him. His heart is firmly set on betraying Christ. Jesus has been pointing this out about Judas over time, not by name, but he's been pointing out that there's a betrayer among them for some time. If you go to John chapter 6, mention has already been made of this among the disciples. Verses 70 and 71, Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now, he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus has already been pointing this out. And Judas has been on this trajectory of a hardening of his heart against Christ. With every show of love, Judas's heart has gotten harder and harder. Remarkably, even in light of that, the fact that Christ has been pointing this out and that it's coming to a culminating point where Judas is about to betray him, remarkably, Jesus is going to wash Judas's feet. Jesus preached in his Sermon on the Mount that we are to love our enemies. And then he demonstrated it in action right here. Let that challenge you. Sometimes God will put people in your life that no matter how hard you try to love them, they are set on being your enemy. 
And you are to keep loving them. And you are to keep praying for them. Matthew 5, verse 44 says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Romans 12, verse 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Focus on your side of the equation. Love your enemies. Be a peacemaker as a follower of Christ. This glorious display of the love of Christ even to an enemy like Judas, knowing precisely what Judas is going to do to him. We see a remarkable display of love for an enemy in what Jesus is about to do, washing the betrayer's feet. Now look at verse 3, back in John 13, and we continue to see the scene unfold. says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. We get a glimpse here of what is on Jesus' mind as he performs this act of humbly washing his disciples' feet. To put it simply, he knows that he is the Son of God, that he has come from God and is going back to God. He knows that he is the King of heaven and earth. Listen to how Paul describes Jesus in Colossians. Colossians 1, 15-17 says of him, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things are his. He had come from God, he was going back to God, and he knew it. He knew he was the majestic and glorious one, that all things had been been created through him and for him, and that he is above all things, before all things, that all things hold together in him. And with that in mind, what does he choose to do? Now before I continue reading in John 13, I want to point out to you, in some translations, you'll see some asterisks next to some of the words here. And what those asterisks are doing is marking present tense verbs that have been translated as past tense verbs. It's called the historical present. And we do this in English as well. When you recount a story, you start to toss in the present tense like you're back there in that scene, reliving it. And it serves to highlight some of the key actions that will take us back into the scene. And so I'm going to read verses 3 through 5, with those present tenses in there so you can see the effect of it. And I want you to, to just picture what is happening here in this scene. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, gets up from supper and lays aside his garments. 
And taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he pours water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Amazing. Not at all what you would expect a glorious king to do, especially when he's just contemplated the majesty of his position and his possessions. It's an astonishing display of humility. To have a knowledge of his excellence and to stoop so low. The host of the Passover meal washing the feet of his guests. It's, it's unheard of. It's not normal. He sets aside his dinner clothes. He wraps a long towel around the waist long enough to be able to, to go around him and have material to be able to wipe feet as he washes them. People typically wore sandals and their feet easily collected dust from the road and mixed with sweat. It's, just, it's a dirty job to wash feet. And typically this work was reserved not even for Hebrew slaves but for Gentile slaves It was considered a low task. And so this is an absolutely stunning display of humble love. That word poured is actually the same root word as the one used to describe the devil putting the temptation of betrayal into the heart of Judas. It means to throw. The devil had thrown the temptation into Judas's heart to betray Jesus And Jesus threw water into a basin to wash his disciples' feet, including Judas. The devil and Jesus are throwing vastly different things. The devil is throwing evil and hatred. Christ is throwing goodness and love, pouring water into a basin so that he can wash the feet of his disciples. We see here a remarkable display of humility and love. By Jesus, the exalted king, stooping to the lowly task of washing feet. And he would shortly stoop still lower and serve them even more significantly, as we saw last time, by loving his own to the end, by loving them to the full, by dying for them at the bottom rung position of a vile criminal on the cross. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8 say, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he is God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, taking on a human nature. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, a death reserved for the worst of criminals. We should marvel at the glorious display of humility and service and love that we see from our Savior toward His disciples when He stoops to wash 
their feet, and then to think even beyond that to the extent he's going to go when he goes to that cross. Jesus, knowing his own majesty, took the position of a lowly servant and loved and served his disciples, and he will continue to love them and to serve them to the end. What a glorious king, a king who washes feet, maybe not glorious in the world's eyes, but glorious and precious to those who know him, who see the beauty of the love of this Savior. Well, we've looked at the function, first function of Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet, what it served, which was the act itself. It was a, a true, humble expression of loving service. We'll also observe another function of this foot washing, which is that it is a picture pointing beyond just this moment, a picture of spiritual cleansing. And I'll keep reading those historical presents in there so we can see again how these different actions are being highlighted in the scene. So, Coming to verse 5. And he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. He, so he came to Simon Peter and says to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, here he comes to Peter, and we need to think, uh-oh, what's going to happen? He's come to Peter. This could get interesting, right? Bold and and brash Peter. He says to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter is questioning Jesus coming to wash his feet. In verse 7, Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Jesus is basically saying to him, Yes, I am going to wash your feet. And I have my reasons. You don't get it right now, but you'll get it later. Just trust me. Well, what does Peter do? Verse 8, Peter says to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Peter uses a, a double negative here, which makes it a very strong no and then he adds a little phrase at the end, literally, to the age. And when you, when you put all of this together, perhaps a close equivalent in English would be, no, not ever, never, never will you wash my feet. This might come off like, like a humble thing for Peter to say, whoa, 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 you're the king. I should be washing your feet, not you washing mine. But, What you need to see here is that Peter is failing to simply trust Christ and to submit to Christ. He's essentially telling the Lord that he cannot do something. You don't do that. Have you had Peter moments in your life? I know I have. You have in your mind that that things should go a certain way in life, and yet God's providence brings about something different. Perhaps you get the thought, Lord, it shouldn't be happening this way. 
Or, or let's take what we noted earlier about Christ's command for us to love our enemies. I, I know, Lord, I'm supposed to love my enemies, but Lord, this one, this one, this, this enemy, really? Or it can be some other command that really challenges us and presses us to trust the Lord and to submit to what he says. It's our, our own, in our own rationale, perhaps we start to think, is it really better to do it this way? It just seems so much harder. If I could just cut some corners here or there, or we come up with justifications of, of how, well, that command doesn't apply to this particular situation. This is, this is different. Well, Peter is going to continue to learn, and we need to continue to learn at the base level that we need to trust the Lord, and we need to submit to the Lord. Even when we don't understand what is going on, we need to take him at his word and trust him and submit to him. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 say this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Peter's perplexed at what's going on, but he needs to learn to trust the Lord. We need to learn to trust the Lord, even when we're perplexed, even when we don't understand why things are happening the way they are. Peter needed to grow in his trust of the Lord and his fear of the Lord, and so do we continually, over and over and over. You see it happen with Peter again and again, and we see it in our own lives again and again, learning to trust the Lord, learning to submit to the Lord. Well, Jesus patiently and wisely responds to these words from Peter. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. He says, Just realize, Peter, if I don't wash you, you're not mine. Is that what you want? A defining mark of being one of Jesus' own is that you have been washed by him. If you are not washed by Jesus, you have no part with Jesus. You are not his. His are only those that he has washed. Well, this statement from Christ struck a chord in Peter. And he responds, verse 9, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And now Peter swings completely in the other direction. And Peter is still trying to tell Jesus what to do. First, he told him what he was not going to do. You're not going to wash my feet. And now he's telling him to do more than what he was going to do. Don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands and my head. Wash all of me. You ever have those kind of Peter moments? You get it wrong one way, and then you overcorrect the other way. Perhaps you're convicted of your failure to obey God in some area, and then you try to go after it big time, but in your own strength and with your own kind of solution, you're still missing it. Peter was still missing it, and Jesus is still patient with him and wisely 
responds to Peter, and it is an amazing teaching moment. Verse 10, Jesus says to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. I love how Wearsby explains and reflects on this verse and what's being said here. He says, as the believer walks in this world, it is easy to become defiled. He does not need to be bathed all over again. He simply needs to have that defilement cleansed away. God promises to cleanse us when we confess our sins to him, 1 John 1, 9. So what we need to understand from this is that believers are already washed in the full bath sense in regeneration. But they walk in a fallen world and they are tempted. They get their feet dirty and they stumble in sin. They don't need to be regenerated all over again every time they sin. But they do still need a kind of cleansing that takes place in the, the progress of progressive sanctification. Back in John 3, Jesus spoke to Nicodemus of the need for regeneration, the need to be born again. And, and there he's alluding back to Ezekiel 36. And I want us to look there for a moment because there's a powerful connection here to this picture of washing and cleansing. Ezekiel 36, and we'll pick up in verse 24. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is a picture of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. This is what Nicodemus should have known about as a teacher of Israel. It's something Jesus points out to him in John 3. Being spiritually born again, being spiritually made alive, spiritually made new, is shown in Ezekiel 36 by a picture of cleansing or washing by the Spirit. Titus 3 verse 5 puts it this way, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And then also in 2 Corinthians five seventeen and 18, we see the result of this washing described in terms of having a new nature, being a new creature in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. 
The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. If you are in Christ, you are a new creature. You have experienced the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. You are not who you were. You are no longer dead in trespasses and sins. You've been made alive with Christ. You were spiritually blind. But now you see. And yet, there is still a remainder of indwelling sin that you are to war against by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells you. As you walk in this world, your feet will get dirty. You stumble in sin and you hinder your communion with your Heavenly Father. And who do you need to cleanse you? You need Christ to cleanse you. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Saints, have your feet gotten dirty? Have you sinned against the Lord in your thoughts, in your actions, in your words? You need to confess that to the Lord and to trust in His faithfulness and His righteousness and be forgiven and cleansed from unrighteousness and have your communion with the Lord restored. You are already clean in terms of being a new creature in Christ. You are already clean in terms of justification by faith. Your union with Him is intact, but your communion with the Lord will be hindered if you have not acknowledged your stumbling in sin and have not turned from it. Don't put it off. If the Lord is convicting you of something you've not dealt with, deal with it right now here where you sit. And make plans to resolve things with others if your sin against the Lord involved offenses toward others. And if you have gotten yourself entangled in something and you're now having trouble getting untangled, just want to encourage you to let one of the elders know. We're here to serve you with God's truth, and we love you, and we want to help you in your striving to deal with sin. Now, Jesus says they are clean, but not all of them. And he means that total bath since here. There's someone among them who has not had that regeneration kind of washing. John gives commentary on that in verse 11 to explain the significance of what Jesus has said in verse 10. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Then John explains here, For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. It's amazing to think that even here, Jesus is giving Judas another opportunity to recognize his condition. To think about Christ's humble service toward him that had just been displayed 
and to repent and to change course from what he is about to do. But as we will see, he is firmly fixed and set on betraying Christ. The most important thing about you is whether your soul has been washed by Jesus. If you have not been washed by him, if you have not been spiritually cleansed by him, if you have not been made a new creation by him, your destiny is to face God's everlasting judgment against you for your sin against him. He is a perfectly holy God, and we are unholy. Indeed, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve his judgment for our sins against him, but there is hope for us. There is one remedy. It is a remedy that only God himself could provide. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take on human flesh like yours and mine. Jesus lived a sinless life in the place of his people, a life they could never live. And he died the death that they deserved for their sins against a holy God. And then he rose from the dead, showing that he had conquered sin and death for all who would trust in Christ alone to save them. I implore you, if you realize that you are one who is unclean, if you realize that you have not been made right with God, I want to urge you to repent of your sin and to believe on Jesus Christ today and to be saved from sin and death. Become a one who has been washed by Jesus. If that's you, I'd love to speak with you after the service or one of the elders here, anybody here you know to be a Christian, I'm sure would love to help you process through what the Lord may be doing in your heart. It's interesting to think about Judas, who was brought up early and comes up here at the end, and then also Peter and Jesus' interactions with him. Both Judas and Peter will go on to sin against the Lord in major ways. Jesus will... Judas will betray Jesus, and Peter will deny Jesus. But we see the difference between one who is washed and gets his feet dirty and one who has not been washed at all and how they respond to their sin against the Lord. One goes and hangs himself. The other repents and is restored. It's great hope for us, those who are washed, that the Lord keeps us and restores us when our feet have gotten dirty. Well, what a glorious fragrance of humble love we see as John has invited us back into this scene where Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. It is an act itself, a real and true act of loving, humble service by Christ 
to his disciples. The king took the position of slave and he served in love. It also functions as a picture, an object, a lesson about the spiritual washing that we need from Jesus. Washing in regeneration, being born of the Spirit, and washing in terms of our progressive sanctification, washing in terms of our stumbling in sin as believers as we walk in this fallen world and still battle indwelling sin that remains. Washing that restores our communion with God when we have hindered that communion with Him by our sin. I want to encourage you this week, saints, to be moved by the love of Christ. Not unmoved like Judas was. Love displayed to him again and again, and he was intent on what he was going to do against the Lord. But let the love of Christ move you to love him more. Let Christ's love for you be a deterrent to sin. Remembering the great price that was paid to set you free from sin. And if you do stumble, remember you're a new creature. Go to Christ. Confess your sins to him and be forgiven and cleansed. Have your communion restored to God. By the grace of God, turn from sin Submit yourself to the godly living that is called for by God's word, a walk that is fitting for those who are new creations in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a glorious display of humble, loving service we have beheld in this passage. And what a glorious object lesson it provides for us to consider the spiritual cleansing that you bestow upon your own, washing us in regeneration, washing us in progressive sanctification. Grant us to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Grant us to flee from sin and to be quick to confess it and to seek your cleansing when we stumble in it when our feet get dirty walking in this fallen world. As we walk in this world this week, grant us to boldly proclaim the good news of Christ who has saved us, that we might share with others how they may come to know and experience this washing that you provide. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.